Hello, my friends. We are live. It's Bradley J in the broadcast. Quentin Miller, professor and chair uh, of English at Suffolk University. And he teaches a number of courses, American literature, African literature, a course called Jazz to Jay-Z, and Bob Dylan and the Beat Generation. And that's what we're focusing on today. Thanks for being with me, with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you you could have chosen any number of folks that, to represent the Beat Generation, but you chose Dylan. Why is that? Yeah, you know, it became interesting when he won the Nobel Prize in Literature because there was a, a kind of long-standing debate about whether rock music, you know, the poetry associated with rock music was literature, and then the Nobel Committee decided it for us. So it was there was a real legitimate legitimacy to looking at someone like Dylan as a poet, uh, and there always had been, but you know, it had been kind of debatable. But I thought this is a moment to seize on, and uh, obviously, he's a figure who's still active. And, uh, you know, still well known. And so it was kind of a way to, to draw students in and to connect uh, him to one of his one of his many influences. That is a beat generation writers. So punk music was a, a movement that was a response to the big bloated prog rock of the 70s and arena rock of the 70s. Self-importance. What was the beat generation a response to the beat movement a response to? Really a response to. Uh, the kind of post-World War II conservative mood, uh, this idea that America was this superpower that, you know, uh, it, there was the greatest generation myth and uh, the idea of, of, you know, capitalism, prosperity, uh, middle-class respectability, I guess, was probably the biggest part of it. The, that whole idea of the American dream that everybody talks about really was cemented in the 1950s. And that's when the beat generation uh, came about. And, and, you know, they were... They were guys on the margins and they were saying that this doesn't represent what we're seeing on television, for instance, which was a brand new invention at the time. Uh, doesn't represent us, doesn't represent our experiences. Let's rebel against all that. Let's do it in uh, in literature, but also in our lifestyle. So I think it was it was really a response to the post-World War II conservative mood uh, and, you know, the sense that, that that their lives were not represented anywhere. So they had to take control of that. So the 50s, communism, the threat of communism, the idea of communism was a, was a real player. Was it a factor in the way the, the beat generation thought? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, in fact, Ginsburg, uh, in one of his most famous poems called America, he says, uh, I'm America, I'm a communist, I'm not sorry, you know, which was a dangerous thing to say in, in the 1950s. And he had grown up uh, in, in the 30s and 40s going to, to communist meetings. This was, you know, kind of what he was raised on. Uh, so the ideas of communism and also other alternative ideas to, to kind of mainstream American culture, you know, Zen Buddhism, just, just things that most people didn't consider legitimate and almost considered, you know, uh, kind of dangerous or, or antithetical to American values. The Beats just wrapped their arms around that. Homosexuality, drug use, I mean, you name it, <laughs> whatever was considered what you were supposed to be doing uh, in America, they almost took that as a cue. Well, we're going to do just the opposite. Communism, big part of that. For some of the writers more than others, uh, I mean, Kerouac, uh, I don't think affiliated himself with uh, with a political party that way, but but Ginsburg definitely did. So what are some of the central elements of beat generation, the beat culture in terms of religion, materialism, human condition, anything else that might be a key element? I think what they arrived at, I mean, it took, they took different paths to get there, but I, I think uh, what they arrived at was just a kind of 
restoring trust in the individual, right? And, and the idea that the masses would kind of tell you to think a certain way and that this was really destructive to uh, to individual thinking. So, so they tried to write their works that way too, that there was kind of anti-conventionalism to it. Uh, if you thought a poem was supposed to rhyme, for instance, or be short or have, you know, a kind of meter to it, uh, they just kind of exploded that because they, they saw that as a way to, to get deep into one's consciousness and, and to, to tap into one's intuition. Uh, somewhere in our being, they thought, we know what's right. We know what, you know, how to, how to live our lives. We just kind of have to find our way to that. So for some of them, it was uh, Buddhism. They, they really thought that that was the way to go or, or other, you know, kind of alternative to Western uh, ideologies. Um, for, for some of them, you just kind of had to, as in the, you know, well-chronicled uh, novel On the Road, uh, just kind of experience life to, to do things that uh, were considered criminal maybe by some or to, to take drugs, to, you know, uh, hitchhike, to do, to do things that were going to kind of gather up experience as a way of uh, connecting to your, your inner creature, whatever, whatever that was. So did Dylan, in his writing, explode the standard method the same way that the, the other beat writers did? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> not exactly the same way, but, you know, he, he, he took it in his own direction. And this is kind of what my course uh, tries to get at, was that you can't really classify him as a beat generation writer. He came a little bit later, but he was strongly influenced by them. He knew Ginsburg well. Uh, he, you know, there's this one scene in the documentary, No Direction Home, the Martin Scorsese documentary of, of Dylan, where Dylan just quotes a, a passage at length verbatim from On the Road. So he's, he's really kind of, um, you know, deeply influenced by them. But to your question, I mean, I, I'm thinking of even his first couple of albums. I mean, Dylan is famous for never doing the same thing twice, right? Never, you know, giving you exactly uh, what you expect from him. And on his second album, which is one of his most popular ones, uh, he's got the song Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, one of his great songs, if people know it. Um, and it's it's over six minutes long. I mean, this is 19, what, 62 or something like that. And, and you know, you don't, you, you wouldn't get on the radio with a song like that. But it was, it was Dylan kind of following his own instincts, following uh, his intuition to write a song that had a very strange uh, kind of metrical logic to it and uh, that was what he wanted to do and that's always been how he's operated you know you, you think you figured him out and suddenly he, he flips things and uh, and completely goes his own way and one of the beat generation one of their their real sort of central tenets is to be spontaneous not not to think things through not to plan things out uh but just to kind of go for it and that's dylan and dylan in the studio you know he's uh if, if if he screws up a little bit he's like oh that's fine keep it in uh if he's at a concert, if he's performing live, he'll he'll mess with his own lyrics. Like he he won't even sing the lyrics the way they were written, uh, just out of pure spontaneity. So I think he's he's a, a creature of constant change. And yeah, he gets that from the beats. Do you think that he considered himself one of them, a colleague, a contemporary, one of the movement? Did they consider him one of them? I think it was more uh, like a parent and child relationship in a way, or older brothers, maybe, maybe that's a better way to think about it, that, you know, they, they kind of came first and paved the way. Um, but the, the beat generation, I mean, as we think about them, 
you know, some of them wrote for a long time, but but the generation, the, the core of it didn't last that long. And, and really by the time uh, Dylan was rising to, to superstardom, the beat generation were, were kind of fading from sight a little bit. And uh, Ginsburg says at one point that that he feels as though the pretty early on in Dylan's career that, that Dylan had become, you know, that Ginsburg had been his teacher, but now that Dylan uh, had something to, to tell him that it, it flipped around. So I think that they, the, the Beats considered him their heir and he considered them, you know, one of many influences, but, but a, a profound one. There were a lot of influences uh, that Dylan was drawing from. So there's the Beat generation and then there's the Beat Nick culture and they're not, I kind of thought they were the same, but research tells me not really so much that the Beats really didn't like the Beat Nicks because they they were more interfaced with the hippie movement. Am I accurate in there? And uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, the the the, the term was originally uh, it was a journalist I forget his name who coined the term Beatnik, and it was a derogatory term. He was trying to sort of associate them with uh, with Soviet communism and so forth. And right. Just, yeah, they said we don't, you know, whatever. Um, but the Beatniks, I think it became kind of a lifestyle. You know that there was there. It, it's it's kind of like. I don't know if it's still a, a current derogatory term, but as of a couple of years ago, the term hipster uh, really became, you know, something that that uh, my students, for instance, would hold in scorn. If someone was a hipster, they were kind of a pretender. Right. Uh, and so I think the beatniks were sort of seen as followers of, you know, of people like Kerouac or Ginsburg and uh, Ginsburg, Kerouac, Dylan, all of them, I think would say, you know, don't, don't try to imitate me, <laughs> do your own thing, go your own way. And, and so, uh, I guess that, you know, that widespread uh, generation, which, of course, fed into uh, the hippie movement in a lot of ways. Um, there was a, a sort of difference between those who were artists, creative types, and those who were just sort of like dressing up like <laughs> like the Beats, like they thought the Beats would look like or something. You mentioned Beat Nick being associated with communism. And it, it's important to note that Beat Nick is spelled with a K, mm -hmm. not CK, which is how you a lot of stuff was spelled in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Appar yeah. Can we get yeah, some back? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And after you finish answering that, give a little background on Dylan more than we have now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I have much more to say about the beatnik thing, but you're right. It's, it was, it was sort of uh, a way to, to, you know, scare parents or sort of, you know, watch out for your kid's behavior. The next thing you know, they're going to be smoking marijuana and going to, you know, socialist communist meetings or something. Um, but Dylan's background, I mean, it's fascinating. And uh, I, I don't know how, how deep or superficial I should get for your listeners. They probably know something of him, but, but his story is pretty fascinating. He started, uh, as a Jewish kid in northern Minnesota, of all things, I mean, he, he must have felt like like an outsider from the beginning, and uh, and always, I think, felt a little bit, you know, kind of on the margins of society, and yet ready to comment on that society as uh, as a result, which is which is exactly in line with everyone from the Beat Generation. They they were, you know, kind of uh, not quite in the center of things. So he started as a young man uh, in northern Minnesota and decided he had to get out, uh, went to the University of Minnesota, Minneapolis, for a short period of time, uh, dropped out, came to Greenwich Village in uh, right around 1960, which uh, which is where the folk scene was happening. 
And at that point, he was strongly influenced by a number of uh, different individual artists, uh, most notably Woody Guthrie. This is this was kind of his hero. He wanted to be like Woody Guthrie to write those same kind of songs of the heartland. He thought this was uh, good, authentic music. Um, but also at the time in Greenwich Village and a number of other folkies who were doing different things, you know, who were writing songs. Uh, Dave Van Ronk was, was sort of drawing from the African-American blues uh, tradition. Um, there, there, were, there were just quite a few people around and they all kind of converged on Dylan, uh, by which I mean, you know, he, he borrowed a little bit from, from this guy and from that guy and, and created something new, new and unique. Uh, he's a gifted songwriter. I mean, people have very different um, opinions about whether he's a gifted singer or not. His voice gets a lot of attention as, as being pretty eccentric, um, but some people love it uh, for its eccentricity. So all this is happening in the very early 60s. He's in Greenwich Village. He's writing up a storm. Um, people are very impressed. He gets uh, connected with Joan Baez, who, uh, you know, they get romantically involved and they tour together. And he pretty quickly, you know, becomes the starring attraction whenever the two of them tour together. Uh, leaves her behind and, and moves on. Now, at the very same time, as we all know, uh, rock music is developing. The Beatles are, are coming on the scene and, and Dylan is listening to that too and saying, well, I'm kind of interested in, in this electric music too, um, plugged in music. 1965, the big year, he goes to the Newport Folk Festival, um, plays an electric set and people are either going crazy excited about it or they're booing him off the stage and all of this, this kind of craziness. And at that point, Dylan, you know, has a a very odd relationship with his fans, uh, some of whom are coming to, to hear him sing his folk songs and not getting that. Uh, others whom, of whom are embracing his, his uh, forays into rock. And so there's, there's a real kind of electric, uh, um, you know, sensation every time he plays. He gets really, really burned out of touring, as you would imagine anyone would. And in 1966, he either has a motorcycle accident or some people <laughs> suggest fakes a motorcycle accident and uh, disappears from touring for a number of years, reinvents himself again. And uh, That's when he comes back with the band, right? Yep. Comes back with the band. Uh, he's sort of holding himself up in somewhere in, uh, you know, New York state. And, and in fact, Woodstock, some people interpret the whole Woodstock festival as a way to try to get Dylan to come out of, uh, out of his, out of hiding to play again. They were very, Woodstock was very close to, to where Dylan and the band were recording. And Dylan, of course, said, well, thanks. <laughs> Man. Uh, talk a little bit about the time. And I, this is su super interesting to me because you got Dylan, Dylan, the kind of folky, even electric folky. His interface with Warhol and the factory and Edie Sedgwick. Mm. That's yeah, a yeah, yeah, very un-Dylan kind of thing to do, right? I guess so. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's many other kind of pivots he does later in his career that just shocked people. I mean, there's, there's that and people are thinking, well, what is, what is he, uh, what is he getting out of that? Um, and of course he's, just, I mean, he, he's sort of a sponge. He just sort of, you know, takes things in and then reproduces them in his own way. So, so yeah, this, the sort of surrealism of his, uh, of his great albums of the mid sixties, these, these, and this is something he also that connects back to, to some of the beat, writers like Ginsburg who were, who were very much into surreal imagery, things that, that kind of don't make sense uh, next to each other. So he was interested in that too. I mean, later in his career, he actually had a, a born again Christian phase that just shocked people. And 
Uh, and then he had a, a sort of Zionist album that, that you know, right after the Christian phase that, that, that also surprised people. So he just uh, never, he seems very restless that, that he's always doing different things. I would say bored. A guy like him, smart guy, is probably easily bored. That could explain all these different uh, yeah. exper experiments, just plain old, old being bored. Being bored or just just being like you know where where can I take this I guess like how he, like now um, I was just sampling a little bit of it last night he he has his own brand of whiskey that he distills and and on the cover or on the the bottle of the the whiskey bottle it's called Heaven's Door uh, there's images from this this sort of metal work that he does he he's you know he's he's got this studio where he creates these giant metal sculptures and and that's represented on the bottle uh, he's done some some writing as well. Um, not enough for some of his fans. They want him to, he wrote this one book called Chronicles, which was uh, Chronicles volume one. So you knew there's more coming, but it was largely about his time in, in Greenwich Village. Uh, and then, you know, moving out of that scene a little bit, people were just waiting for the next installment and, and it kind of never came. Uh, he wrote a really experimental novel, I guess you would call it, called Tarantula back in 1967 or 66, I want to say, which is, incomprehensible but you know something he tried so i just i don't think he's he's uh yeah he's bored maybe or just 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 thinking that there's no limit to what he can do so in the 60s there was a general feeling that wow we can change things it's going to be a better world this is the beginning of something new it's a new morning and uh the folks that actually thought that they could fix the problem later on kind of became the problem correct <laughs> i mean does, is that true and and did did Dylan note that? Did he become part of the problem too, along with everybody else? Well, he, he definitely got some uh, some flack for, for instance, you know, selling his music catalog, which happened pretty recently, and uh, before that, sort of selling out in people's uh, opinion in other ways that that his songs were being used on car commercials and things like that. And people thought, "Ooh, no, no, this is not the blown in the wind guy, is it?" <laughs> um, but of course, Dylan, you know, shrugged and said, uh, "Kind of, I don't care." Um, his, I mean, here's how I'll interpret that in question. He, he, he would hate it when people would say you're the spokesman of your generation, right? He thought that that was like the worst thing. And he'd say, ah, oh, I'm not anyone's spokesman. I, That's I a lot of responsibility. A lot of responsibility. And I think this is part of the reason he went off the road. Part of the reason he, uh, you know, just decided to, to record songs that were sometimes absurd and hilarious. I mean, he was really funny in, in a lot of his songs and People didn't want him to be funny. Like folk music was, you know, dead serious. We've got to end the war, man. We've got to, you know, uh, all link arms and sing together. And Dylan just was, kind of wasn't giving them that. So I think in some ways he was trying to avoid that problem that you speak of. The problem being, you know, uh, sort of thinking like a generation, thinking like, um, you know, we're, we're all doing the same thing together. He much more thought that if everyone's, you know, just kind of trusting their own instincts, trusting their conscience, uh, things will get done. I mean, this isn't to say he stopped being political, um, but he was doing it on his own terms. Uh, you know, for instance, in the in 1976, he comes out with that album Desire uh, with the song Hurricane, which which was about a very specific case of racial injustice. And, and at that moment, it's a very intense song. It's a great song. When was uh, that? 75, did you say? 76, I think. Uh, okay. I might have that wrong. It might be 75, but right okay. around that. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember that as as a, an, kind of a theme when I was in college to stuff that was going on in college. Mm -hmm. What do you, what is it you want the students to walk away with from this? How, do you want them to be better writers or just be 
more informed about their cultural history? Mm, uh, both uh, of those and, and more. Like, I, I want them to be curious. I think that, you know, we barely scratched the surface of either Dylan or the Beat Generation in this course. And uh, most of my courses end this way with me just kind of giving them a, a long list of, of books that, that they should encounter next. Like, where do you go from here? Uh, so one of the things I want to instill in my students is just kind of lifelong curiosity and, and to say, you know, you can take somebody that people just dismiss as a pop singer. I remember this this one student took my class and he was really into it. And he came up to me after class one day and said, you know, my parents can't believe uh, I'm taking this class. They, they referred to Dylan as, as some dumb burnout. Right. <laughs> and I said, and you're taking this class. Why? And they said, well, just to sort of test whether my parents were right about that. I said, what do you think? Uh, so, so the idea is, you know, to kind of uh, get students to to kind of navigate that territory of of not just just kind of accepting the wisdom uh, of their elders or or their peers or whomever it is, but encountering things that can be really rich. That's kind of weird. I can yeah. see him being a smart burnout, but not a dumb burnout. I, I, I thought it was completely, you know, clearly his parents had a certain ideology that they were. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess sometimes when you encounter the kind of genius that Dylan is and was that, you know, you, some people just back down and say, well, it doesn't make any sense to me. So therefore it must be dumb, you know? Um, huh. Yeah. In or general. Yeah. You, you know, you teach literature, you want people to write well, but it seems like you're, ba you're battling an, an unbeatable tide of a, a erosion of the language. Hmm. Is that a thing for you? Is that a problem? Is it true? It, it's it's I'll, it's tempered a little bit like it's um, yes, there is an erosion in the language. There is a sense that, uh, you know, pe people aren't being as creative with the language as they as they once were. L.O.L., um, you know, yeah, L.O.L., right. That's just, <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's the definitely a, a decay around uh, around communication, which, again, I, I think it's a great you know, we, we, we sink into like one song for an entire class. Seventy five minutes will spend pulling apart the lyrics of, of uh, you know, visions of Johanna or something like that, 75 minutes. And, and they, they don't often have the opportunity to do that. So, or, or don't give themselves the luxury of doing that. I mean, there, there's a site on, on the internet called genius. You might've heard of it and they, they'll kind of interpret lyrics for you, you know, so that they'll you click on a lyric and, and it'll, uh, it started out as rap genius. It was mostly about rap lyrics because people were like, well, what is this alluding to? What is this meaning? And the internet kind of does all the work for you. So I, I, I kind of try to forbid things like that right away and say, well, you know, what do you think this means? What could it mean from your perspective? Why would you assume that rap genius or genius is, uh, is the answer to everything? Uh, so there, there's a way to, to, you know, kind of indulge uh, in, in poetry, which is really what Dylan was writing and, and to, to, you know, take it patiently. Let's, let's talk about lyrics before we go. I write songs and I have always spent too much time and energy trying to have the lyrics make sense, I believe. Mm -hmm. now, you talk about breaking down the lyrics and the meaning of the lyrics and all. I'm I'm curious where nonsense lyrics come into place or just mm -hmm. uh, randomly generated lyrics or lyrics generated by the cut-up method. Mm -hmm. Lyrics that are intended to not necessarily come with a message but be sort of a Rorschach test for the for the listener. How do you know when you're tearing apart the lyrics what was intended and, and what's just randomly thrown in there? 
That's an excellent question. And, and, you know, Dylan is at the heart of it. He was actually trying to write things that didn't make sense sometimes. And, you know, part of the point was, uh, you know, why does everything have to make sense? Why he was, he was almost trying to get his, um, his listeners to think illogically, if that makes sense. You know, we, we don't, we, we think of thought and logic as opposite things, but really that there is a part of our brain and it's what produces dreams. A lot of Dylan's lyrics, you know, they were called like Bob Dylan's 115th Dream and even just sort of randomly number them or or the titles of his songs would have nothing to do with the lyrics. Rainy Day Women, you know, uh, the lyrics that just don't appear within the song. So he, he kind of leaned into that a little bit and said, yeah, this is just kind of what I am producing. And sometimes the sounds of the words are more important than the meaning. Right. I wasn't going to bring this up, but when you say the sounds of the words are more important than meaning. Yeah, sometimes the voice is just another instrument. But as an example, an extreme example of words not being important, there's someone recently turned me on to this, and I hadn't planned on going this direction, so I can't remember the, the artist or the song, but there's an Italian, a famous Italian video of some um, uh, singer and a bunch of dancers, and it's just such a compelling song. And mm -hmm. then it's only like after someone tells you, those are meaningless words. That's gibberish <laughs> on purpose, gibberish. And it's just shocking how compelling it is. And you don't really always need to know the lyrics. And also, there are many songs that I love. And I only, it's only after loving them for 40 years, I, I learned the lyrics, Yeah, which is it's just a strange thing. Uh, that's we're getting off on down going down another rabbit hole. I don't want to go too far down, but thanks very much for spending the spending the time with me. We'll we'll have to figure out something to do another time because you're just yeah. a wonderful guest. Oh, and this is this has been great. Thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. I'm gonna share this with big old groups and anyone out there who enjoyed this and wants to share it and help out, that'd be great. Quentin Miller, I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be clear in about five seconds, four and three.